Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, Trumpcast. We are so excited to be in Austin, Texas at the Capitol Factory. Tremendous building. Tremendous building. I would be there for this Trumpcast, but Barack Obama has been there, and I won't go any place he's been. Other than the White House. I hear you have this guy, Beto, running for Senate. Horrible guy, horrible guy. And don't be fooled because he's handsome. I mean, not as handsome as me. If Ted Cruz loses to Beto O'Rourke, I will never talk to him again. Now that I think about it, that's actually a pretty good deal. Hello, and welcome to Trumpcast. The show about the man who says Christina Blasey Ford is compelling and credible. (laughs) Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg, here with Virginia Heffernan. Jamel Bowie. The applause isn't competitive here. We want it all to be about the same level. Okay. Uh, um, it is, in fact, competitive. <laughs> uh, later in the show, we will be joined by Ashley Parker of the Washington Post. That's uh, a lot of she's, she's part of the team that covers the White House and won the Pulitzer Prize last year. Just that. She's an amazing, oh, yeah, that. Uh, but first, I want to welcome our first guest, Anna Marie Cox. Uh, Anna Marie, come on out. Exactly. <laughs> you, might, you might know, if you're, if you're a little older like you, me, you might know Anna Marie from the blog Wonkette, which was one of the first and best political blogs. Um, you might know her, remember her from MTV News. And given what, who this, who's here in this crowd, you probably know her from her podcast. <laughs> with, with, with friends like these um, from our friends at Crooked Media. We are going to start out, um, for, uh, for our, to here to talk about our first topic. Anybody want to guess what it is? Yeah, all right. Um, it's Brett Kavanaugh. Um, <laughs> and uh, just, to, just to start it out, Anna Marie, Trump did say that Dr. Ford was credible and compelling. What was he, why did he say that? What was, what's he doing? You guys are the more expert people here. I, I mean, he had a brain fart in the right direction. I don't know. Like, um, what's the opposite of a, a, a brain fart? That would be what happens to Trump. Wait, is that right? boofing? Oh. <laughs> he had a brain boof? Um, that sort of sounds like something that would happen to Trump. Um, yeah, I mean, in a weird way, I think it's the opposite of a, a gaffe, I guess. I mean, like, um, or it is a gaffe. He told the truth. Accidentally told the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it happens every so I mean, I fired Jim Comey for that Russia y- thing. Like, yeah, I mean, I think that, it. well, the thing is, like, I think Trump is 
kind of always telling his truth. So I think that maybe he did think she was compelling. Like he loves TV, right? I mean, he's, mm. he's a, he's, he's a amateur television critic in all forms, right? Like he, 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 he that's how he consumes the world is via television. So I think in terms of the reality television show that we were all watching, he was like, yeah, she's clearly like one of the lead players. I mean, I get, mm-hmm. you know, she's a lead. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so and, I think she must be important. And compelling well, incredible doesn't necessarily mean he was saying it in a positive yeah. way, right? It yeah. could be like, oh shit, he's, she's compelling incredible. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. And it could you be know, just like the critics sort of, you know, wow, yeah, she did a good job of convincing people of her bullshit. You know, like he could, he could, he doesn't think compelling incredible doesn't mean he's telling the truth. Yeah. But I, mean, I it, it, like, she thinks he's telling the truth. Cre- he like, credible was also Whoa. the word we all had to use about her. But does, if you, I'm not sure if he knows what the word her. means. So. Well, he then she's said believable. Kavanaugh was incredible, but I don't think right. he was being Yeah, too someone, a couple of people on the news have said she was incredibly credible. <laughs> um, but if she's credible, that means you believe she's believable. That means you believe her. That means you think that Kavanaugh sexually assaulted her, right? Again, I don't know if he knows what the word credible okay, means. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I think he just means it think. I think he means it. He might think it means sincere. Or hot. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you never know. But I, you know, knowing his tastes, like, I don't think he thinks it means that. Okay. (laughs) Ana Maria, I mean, Trump has a strategy for dealing with sexual assault allegations. Right. And it's actually, I think it's in the Woodward book. Woodward quotes an anonymous friend of his saying, who's been accused of something, Mm -hmm. and says, you just got to deny everything. If you give an inch... You're 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 on the losing side of it. Just don't admit anything. That's been Brett Kavanaugh's approach. So clearly, he got the Trump approach from Trump, and Trump must like that he's doing that. Yeah, I mean, I think the more important, you know, part of the of the day for Trump was what Kavanaugh did and said, and clearly, like he took a page from the Trump playbook. I mean, we saw, except for the crying. I honestly thought that the crying might might turn Trump off and make him, like, uh, cut bait with Kavanaugh. I really did. Like, I thought, oh, he's crying and Trump doesn't... Trump Trump has said things about how he thinks people who cry are... Pussies. Pussies. Um, Incredible. No, wait, no. (laughs) Grabbing, grab, no. Uh, (laughs) You had to grab the people that are crying. Um, (laughs) So I thought that might, it might backfire, but um, I think that he, you know, anger is a real aphrodisiac... Trump. So I think that, that he really loved that performance. And you I think know, it was a performance, for, everyone said this, it was a performance for an audience of one and it worked. But it, it, it was also a, a Trumpian performance. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. you, I, I watched it both as it was happening, then I watched clips of it with the sound turned off mm. and you, you saw Kavanaugh have the same almost Trumpish like pouting and faces and sort of red faced. And I, I I think I've seen Trump make similar facial expressions and have a similar demeanor. Even the, yeah. Sorry, even is, the rhetoric, the I'm rubber, you're glue kind of stuff oh yeah, the, was like, very what do you drink? What do you drink? What do you, what do you, what's, have you ever blacked out? Have what you ever it, played it, quarters asking Sheldon Whitehouse? I just, no, I have not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was, a, I mean, we can sort of stand the Trump aspect of it, but it, and it's been discussed to death, but it was a, such a surreal experience the whole day to be debating someone's high school yearbook. Mm-hmm. to be debating 80s slang terms, which I remember from mm-hmm. the 80s that, you know, maybe regional differences make make a big difference. But um, 
that's not what, <laughs> yeah, none of that was what I recall. So, what's your psychological read on on Kavanaugh? I mean, there there are a number of different possibilities here. One is that he's innocent and there's a mistake, and that's not the probability is not it's, it's not zero, yeah, right. But it's I would say, in my opinion, it's low. Mm-hmm. There's a possibility that he, that this happened and he doesn't remember it because he was blacked out, mm-hmm. or because that's something memory does is erases things that you wish you hadn't done. Um, I sort of think he's somehow, there's a level at which he, I think it happened. I think there's a level at which he knows it happened, but he has spent the intervening 35 years auto brainwashing. And Mm -hmm. I see him, it actually, I remember kind of thinking about this with OJ Simpson, you know, Mm. OJ Simpson, I thought, actually thought he was innocent, even though he knew he was guilty. Yeah. Because there's a way in which you can't, if you're going to, if you're going to go on, you have to just, you you have to convince yourself that what you know isn't true. (laughs) Yeah. That seems like a bad trait in a judge. Like, like especially unfortunate kind of brainwashing to have in someone who's supposed to, you know, help us decide guilt and innocence. I don't know if. I don't know if anyone else did this, but I tried to think that if someone came forward with allegations against me from 1982, I tried to imagine um, what I would do if they were false and what I would do if they were true. Just like, just sort of test like viscerally what I might do. And I did realize that I would be incredibly upset if someone came forward with saying I had sexually assaulted them in 1982 when I hadn't, that would be terrible. But I would be apoplectic if someone came forward and said I had sexually assaulted them in 1982, and I had. Um, so I, I mean, I, I thought that he convicted himself more than Dr. Ford convicted him. I mean, you know, I just thought it seemed, he seemed, um, I know he's supposed to be angry and he was loud and sounded like a coach or whatever, but he seemed more to be like, ho, ho, my dad, and he's so organized. I just don't know the sentimentality and the, like, strange self-pity and um, I graduated first in my class or whatever, second or something, and I got into Yale. Um, I don't know. He sounded, well, look, Anna, we, uh, he sounded like an alcoholic to me. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, two two things. It's, it's first, it, it was sort of funny to watch him simultaneously deny that he had ever gotten so drunk that he blacked out and that he was never an angry drunk and then watch him belligerently yell at senators and then like have like, (laughs) like weepy self-pitying. It's like, I don't, I don't, I myself have never gotten that drunk, but I have been around very drunk people and that, that seemed like the behavior. It seemed like it would have been a courteous question to be like, just let's leave everything aside. Are you drunk now? (laughs) (laughs) But the the second thing just about about Kavanaugh's psychology is I think, you know, there have been, um, people have, looked back at speeches Kavanaugh's given to graduates of Georgetown Prep and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, they contain language like what happened at Georgetown Prep, stays at Georgetown Prep, sort of um, talks he's given to Yale Law graduates that he was with, you know, what happened in this particular situation, you know, we don't remember it and it's good that we don't remember it. Um, he, for to me, seems like someone who believes that the behavior he displayed as a young person essentially exists in a separate life and and it ought mm. not whether it's true or false it ought not have any bearing on Brett Kavanaugh the 53 year old or how he, that's about, it's 53 yeah. yeah Brett Kavanaugh the 53 year old and what I read in that hearing was sort of 
both entitlement at the position. I mean, for me, the most striking thing about that entire thing was when he sort of threatened the Republic with his vengeance if he didn't oh, get yeah, the job. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Lindsey Graham, like, really yeah. brought the extortion. He sounded, I mean, he's, he sounded like a Batman villain. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so there's that. So his entitlement at the job, but then also his indignation that this would even ever be something he'd ever have to account for. Like, why would I, why should I ever have to account for my drinking as a young person? Um, yeah, what? Yeah, go ahead. I mean, I would say that it wasn't just he thought that his behavior as a young person shouldn't count and because he's old. He thought his behavior, any kind of bad behavior, shouldn't be held against him, period. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, not mm-hmm. just because he was young, but when he was young, when he was old, in between, like, none of it. I mean, it was like, I mean, we, this is I'm not the first in, to notice this, but the sort of white privilege, male privilege of it, who's allowed to get angry mm-hmm. here? Mm-hmm. Like, I also wasn't the first one to observe, like, imagine if we thought of women's tears and anger as proof that they were telling the truth. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, you know, or a person of color's tears and anger as, as proof that they were telling the truth. I mean, it, the the racial stuff has not gotten talked as much about as the gender, but the behavior of young black men does not somehow get written <laughs> off. <laughs> you know, it follows them around for a kind of long time. It usually follows them into school and prison, yeah. you know? Um, and that this, again, that this is a judge. I mean, like, that's the horror of this, that it's a person who we're talking about who we entrust with upholding the civil rights of everyone in the country. And, and for him to have shown, like, this callous disregard for, you know, his own you know, responsibility, his own, his own actions in life. You know, so I was going to say, if I can out me in Virginia, can I? So we're both in recovery. And that's how, you know, speak with some authority about blacking out. Um, yes. But also about what happens when By the you, way, we don't, I don't know that we've talked about this, but oh. the only people in our world who didn't black out when they were drinking were also doing coke. I just yeah. want to add that data. <laughs> if the FBI that's needs true. to know about it, I'm here. <laughs> Yeah, I was more of like I was like a Xanax and booze, but which is whoa, like great for blackouts. Um, I want you on the Supreme Court. Yeah, um, uh, but I, I've said that I, I, I've said this before in other public venues, which is that you know I've had experience of someone coming to me and saying you did this horrible thing, and my having no recollection mm-hmm. of it whatsoever, mm-hmm. and the way that you know. Virginia, tech me, tell me if this is also what you've heard, but the way that it was suggested that I handle those situations is I am in no position to tell you you're wrong. I am in no position to deny what you're saying to me. Of the two of us that were there, or the per, the two people who are, who are able to talk about it right now, you're the one who remembers, mm-hmm. and I can't. So rather than argue with you about whether or not it happened, why don't you tell me what it is you need from me? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Imagine if he had said something like that. It, it, I mean, that 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 gets to what one of the many things striking about it, because there there has always been this easy out for this for him to say, "I drank a lot as a teenager, and I drank too much, and I blacked out, and I did things I regret, and I did things of women I regret, and I'm sorry if that if I did something to you." And that would I, that wouldn't completely diffuse it but it would lower the temperature dramatically. Mm-hmm. But he seems he seems 
utterly unwilling to even concede that. It's not it's not that he didn't do it. It's that I I drank a moderate amount. <laughs> I never drank before. I had work or football practice. You know, if I vomited because I got a weak stomach, you know. I mean that ketchup Who? and spaghetti right. thing, right? Yeah. And it, it's just it's 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 so unbelievable. Yeah. Like yeah. come on like come on we're not we're not dumb. Yeah, like, it's right. it's, no, it's an insult well, that's to it. our intelligence that he tells so these insulting. lies. That yeah. was it, it, more than like the definition of is is and like slippery legal language. The only thing, I mean, he's a lawyer. Like, shouldn't I mean? I don't know. Shouldn't he be within bounds? He sounded like an insolent schoolboy who's just but, like, no, I, I didn't do it. I didn't cheat. I don't know who I am. I don't, you know, go away. It's yeah. not a bong. Um, it's a base. A lot of people wanted to hear him say some version of what Jamel just said. Um, so we could forgive him, accept that he knew himself. But I wonder if that could ever have been true because that's premised on, on an idea that someone like that might have fundamentally changed. Right. Sometimes mm-hmm. people fundamentally change, but it seems to me this whole experience, we've seen a guy who hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. He was, I'm sorry to just put it this bluntly, he was an asshole in high school yep. and he was an asshole the other day. Yeah. Um, yeah. And... <laughs> Uh, and it was kind of the same same guy. And, you know, I mean, I I have maybe like a little insight. I mean, he was he was in the class I graduated from college at. I was I was I gra- I took a year longer, but I graduated Yale 87, which is close. I did not know him all, never crossed paths with him. But I knew the vibe around his fraternity. Yeah. And that's what it was. Yeah. I mean, it was it was anger at women, fear of women, hostility to women, you know, nastiness about, it was just, it was, it was a bastion of every kind of sentiment mm-hmm. that he's been accused of. Yeah. And, you know, at the time it was the only fraternity that stood out I and mean, people that you, you, it wasn't like University of Texas where everybody joins a fraternity. It was a place where nobody joined a fraternity yeah. except people who wanted to create that kind of environment <laughs> for themselves. <laughs> mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. What's um, interesting to me is like Deke has known that, at, I think, sorry, I, I knew about that fraternity. Like that is a remarkably on brand for like its its chapters throughout the country, as mm-hmm. far as I oh, know. Yeah. And so it's it, you really have to like you know what you're getting into if you join that fraternity. I gotta say, Jamel, Jamel and I both went to the University of Virginia. Jamel still lives in Charlottesville. We both had very different experiences because you were there so much more, so much earlier than I was. Actually, you're so much older. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, but I'm kind of happy to see the Ivy League going down for the weird rapey guys after <laughs> UVA is we're in the clear today. Um, <laughs> but also, I want to ask you about the Brett Kavanaugh type, because I have been interested in editorialists. I, something like pulled out the stops in everyone after that day of testimony where instead of writing evaluating the evidence or whatever. There are a lot of op-eds from men and women and everyone of just like, I know that kind of guy and he definitely did it. Like, (laughs) I don't know what, and like, I met that guy, kind of guy at St. Paul's. I met him here, whatever. But I haven't heard from people of color like, well, you, who went to, who went to a a fraternity kind of school with that hard drinking. You didn't think of rushing pie cap and deke and whatever. And like, how did those guys register to you? I mean, they just—they just seem like frat assholes. I mean, that's that's <laughs> yeah. that's the that's the vibe. The I mean, the vibe they had was that they owned the place and that they were entitled to everything. Because their ancestors did. Right, right. Um, and what, did they seem dangerous to you? 
they didn't seem dangerous to me, but I also, UV, I mean, UVA is kind of is a big place, so it's, it's perfectly possible at UVA to kind of construct a world for yourself yep. where you never really overlap with those people. Like even even in the um, extracurriculars I did, which were like pretty mainstream, like I did the Jefferson Society and, yep. and that kind of stuff, that didn't overlap with that element of fraternity culture. There's even within fraternity world at UVA, there are there's just different many different kinds of fraternities, different kinds of fraternity cultures, and so yep. that particular that particular crew or, or, or type of person I saw, I may have like overlapped with, had classes with people like that, but it was never, I was, I would have never been at a party. And like then that. when did they, it's happened a little bit at UVA, but like, when do you think the, the like far right system of thought was codified among the Mark judges and the Brett Kavanaugh's of the world? Like, did that happen at, at Yale? That, cause there's the lifestyle stuff and then there's a whole ideology that props it up. That got him where he is. I mean, just that was there a right that like is, that, that is 80s very, right wing thing? That is a very interesting question. The sort of um, deke to federalist society. <laughs> yes, <Congress>. yes, yes. <laughs> uh-huh. And there, you know, there is a kind of okay. there there is a kind of personality laundering that goes on there, hmm. right? I mean, you know, and I think Kavanaugh somehow constructed this later image for himself as having a judicial temperament, yeah, right, and being someone who would be considered uh, qualified for, for the Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court. And it's, there are definitely some steps in between there. And I'm not so clear on how they were accomplished in his case. I, mean, I think the ideology part is simply that, that, that happens through the process of going through it. Like, I don't know if Brett Kavanaugh at 22 or 23 had any sort of like well-thought-out ideological beliefs. He probably sort of understood himself to be a good person who worked hard, who deserves what he has and is resentful of people who might suggest otherwise. And then that, that presents a path that, that open that ideologically opens up the path to all sorts of like reactionary beliefs. But the, the core I think is formed just by the kind of upbringing you seem to have, which is like very privileged, very elite, no consequences whatsoever. Um, and I think what we saw on Thursday was, what that that someone who had that upbringing and at no point over the course of their life was ever cross pressured against that upbringing ends up like the person we saw on Thursday, someone who is indignant that he would be held accountable for anything. Mm-hmm. How dare you keep me off the Supreme Court? Right. How it's, dare it's, you? It's ins- it, it is insane to me yeah. that anyone could be that entitled about a Supreme Court spot. I mean, yeah. I, I'm the kind of person. <laughs> <laughs> Like a good table at the Four Seasons is one thing, right? Yeah, right. yeah. but like I, I'm, I'm very like I'm just happy to be here, kind of yeah, person, yeah, right? Yeah. Sort of like I'm, I'm glad to even be considered. It's an yeah. honor. But this, I mean, this, there's the words I want to use. I cannot use in public and uh, in, yeah. in a public forum. But this dude goes up there even even before Thursday, even at his first confirmation hearings. It was abundantly clear that he was like, I'm, just, I'm just here to get like a check, right? You're yeah, just gonna yeah. check this off and put me on this court because it's what I deserve. It's what I've earned. Versus um, uh, when uh, Sotomayor, Sotomayor was being confirmed, and Matt Iglesias on Twitter has made this point numerous times, but there is a nationwide smear campaign against her. How da- how dare this woman from the Bronx? Uh, thinks she has the intelligence and temperament to be on the court. It's, it's buck wild. Mm-hmm, <laughs> it's mm-hmm. absolutely buck wild to watch it play out. Right. Yeah, but I wanna, one thing you, can I so, to the point of like um, whether or not his ideology was baked in, ideological, you know, w- uh, views were baked in early or not. I do think there's something about. It. I just want to press home again 
that, you know, straight white cis men in this country spend their lives knowing that they don't have to be account- accountable for anything, right? Like, I don't, I assume, like, I knew I was a bit of a partier. And I actually remember thinking at some point in college, like, well, I'm never going to be able to run for office. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I've now done enough that, like, that's off the, you know, that 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 is, like, no longer going to be. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, like, having, the, and sort of being conscious of a few, in two different pivot points in my life that I was, like, closing off certain professions or, like, life choices because of stuff that I had done. Mm-hmm. And just there are certain men in this world that never think that way. Yeah. Right. That never think, well, I can't do that because I and did X, Y, Z. And certainly since Trump. So, yeah. I mean, there's been an argument advanced, and I think this goes to the side of my ear, that um, Trump's rise is an assault on the idea of meritocracy. Mm-hmm. So that, like, the fact that he's utterly without merit and that Brad Kavanaugh is utterly without merit moral, he doesn't tell the truth, he doesn't, uh, you know, he may be, have been involved in these violent sexual attacks, um, you know, and I'll, he's he's not a, I mean, his, I think he's like cognitively damaged, frankly, but I find out he doesn't track. Um, and, um, and that that's the best thing about them because the horror of the meritocracy is that women and people of color could on their merits, and Jews in your time when there was like oppression or whatever. <laughs> 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 in the 1930s. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but um, but that they people have marginalized. Well, I don't want you to be like sitting in for Brett Kavanaugh. <laughs> there are these shades of difference. Um, but um, that uh, I think the suggestion was that the worst of us, so that Donald Trump could beat the best of you, the Barack Obama. Yeah. So because that's oh, yeah. proof. That it's entitlement and not merit. But hang on, I think you're. I mean, just one thing. I think you have to give credit where credit is due. The the right has whipped the left's butt in judicial politics and yep. legal yeah, politics yeah, 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 yeah. since 1980. Mm-hmm. Since Ronald Reagan was elected, the Federalist Society is a model of how to create an infrastructure and a network to advance a set of political goals. And you know, there for someone like uh, Brett Kavanaugh. There was an ideology available. There were ideas available. There was a set of views. And there was a network that helped you. And that isn't just a, a white male network. Um, I mean, that's, that's not, it may have been mostly that because, because that's who was, it was in power. But they're much more interested in advancing the ideology and the politics. And, what, who's ide- and what ide- who does that ideology benefit? That benefits white, straight men. I mean... There's no, it's not like, oop, anyone could have succeeded in the federal society. No, like, I think, like, we we would have had a harder time, like all of us. Um, I also want to point out that, that sort of the gift of Trump uh, in terms of, like, proving that meritocracy is, is, a, is a joke, which I think you've suggested, is that um, all these um, women and people of color, um, people non-binary who are running for office, I've interviewed uh, fe- several of them, and more than one of them had said, it's like, well, when Trump won, I thought I decided what the fuck, you know, like, mm. like if he can run, if he oh, can yeah, do yeah, it, yeah, like, yeah. I mean, I guess it doesn't matter. I got that DUI. I guess it doesn't mm. matter that like, and yeah. I read a study, like I saw, heard that enough. I, I looked at some studies and there is this weird thing when applying for jobs that women and people of color think that qualifications matter. Like mm-hmm. they're like, oh, well, they read the qualifications on a job listing and yeah. they're like, well, I don't have at white, so I won't apply. And white men are like, well, but I have talent. 
Right, right. <laughs> Talent matters and more than qualifications. Fit. I mean, that, that that list that Lindsey and, Graham, yeah. And so and so Trump has sort of changed that. Trump has, has allowed some people to be like, you know what? Yeah, I don't know how to do X, Y, Z, but I've got talent. Yeah. So, you know, I'm going to run for office. Um, the, the list of qualities of Kavanaugh's that Lindsey Graham gave and lots of people <laughs> gave that he's like, so likable and such a cool guy and so pleasant and everyone thinks he's the nicest guy they've ever met. I mean, that stuff was weird because we had obviously seen like a Jekyll and Hyde sort of binge drinker person. And also, I don't know, that seemed to go to the like good cultural fit. He's our kind of guy. He's like, you know, Cosa Nostra or whatever. (laughs) And, um, and so like, so that means he had, can't have done anything wrong. I, mean, um, I, I think it's it's what. Or if he did, it's still fine. Still, this okay. better be the last yes, word yes, on this subject, yes. I think, because oh. we got some other stuff to talk. about. Well, this could <laughs> be the last word on the subject. It, it all is an expression of entitlement that some a person like Brett Kavanaugh is entitled not just to the position, but entitled to rise to it with minimal with minimal. Uh, questioning all mm-hmm. the focus on his qualifications is if they themselves were dispositive. Him, he himself saying, "I got into Yale," as if that's dispositive of any of anything of 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 uh, his character or his ability to do whatever. It's all it's all an expressive entitlement. I think I think in the same way, you know, Trump's entire demeanor is an expressive entitlement by virtue of the identity I inhabit. I can do whatever the hell I want. Yeah, you cannot stop me. Right, and. From my perspective, sort of that's that's what, what this ultimately is. There was a brief moment uh, culturally where it's seen as a certain kind of entitlement for being challenged, and this is an assertion mm-hmm. of the fact that no, they cannot be. And so I don't. The Republican senators on the Judiciary Committee who basically kind of waved off Ford's testimony as if it didn't happen. I think for them it doesn't matter. It does not matter whether she's telling the truth or not because whether. Her her experiences are irrelevant to his entitlement. Mm-hmm. He is the kind of person right. who's entitled to this, and so he has to get it, and that's just how it is. And if you try to stop it, then you're doing great damage to the republic, to the institution of the Senate, mm. which in a way is true, right? The Senate, the these institutions were set up to perpetuate that kind of entitlement, and now there's a chance that they may not. And to use the phrase again, these particular men are going absolutely buck wild. Anna, we want you to come back. I personally will have no say in the matter. But <laughs> right. Oh, well, <laughs> say we. I think, Virgi- I think Virginia might. Thank you. Thank you. Please. For, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Next up, we have the great, um, yes, Pulitzer Prize winning Ashley Parker from the Washington Post. And we are going to talk about covering the White House. So Amy Chozik gave birth more or less on the campaign trail right after. (laughs) And you're doing all this like backward and in heels and pregnant. Um, So... Not really in heels, backward but, and, and <laughs> cowboy boots. And cowboy boots, nicely um, done. Uh, Ashley, yes. um, I um, 
I think the Washington Post has done a better job than the New York Times with this presidency. <laughs> Just done. Um, and, um, and I don't know how you've avoided some of the traps and even the criticism that the Times has come under um, for rehearsing and rehashing White House talking points. Um, is that a temptation of the profession that you, uh, I mean, obviously you're being spun all the time. And how do you keep your head clear? And, 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 and do you think you've, you've failed ever? I'm sure I failed. Uh, I will say this is a White House that actually doesn't have that many talking points. Mm -hmm. um, so sometimes you're even calling them and begging them, what, what is the White House message on this? Not because you want to purely regurgitate it, but you want to understand what is their spin? What is their thinking? How are they trying to message this? And they simply don't ha have it. Um, yeah. So I guess that helps in some ways. Um, <laughs> I mean, I know one criticism is sometimes you know, is the media just sort of chasing after all of these flashy objects and just, you know, writing on the president's tweets, right? Um, and that's sort of a, a fair discussion. I kind of come down on the side that especially now that he's president, we need to cover the tweets um, because I feel like they're one of the purest distillations into the mind of the president of the United States. It is literally what that man is thinking at any given moment. Um, and it doesn't mean that we have to print them without any context or print them without saying he said this, um, but but it's not true for these seven reasons or, you know, he said this, but but here's why. And then a sort of tangential point is there's also a thought um, that even some editors have and people have is that the president is this master of distraction, right? And so something bad is happening and he throws the media off the scent by saying something outlandish or tweeting something outlandish. And my personal view is that Donald Trump is not this like strategic master of distraction. He often does end up inadvertently distracting and sending them, the media is focused on um, Kavanaugh, and now suddenly they're focused on Rod Rosenstein. Um, but I don't believe that it's like a particular savvy or effective political strategy to replace one crisis with another. Um, incidentally, I will never forgive Brett Kavanaugh for breaking into my enjoyment of the Manafort flip. Um, right. I, I mean, I, like, can we just go back to that halcyon day? Um, um, what, um, so, I mean, do you have, Trump, sometimes it feels like he has us coming and going in the media. Like we just, we can't get our head above water and he's like either using us or we're reacting to him and we're starting to use the same heated language to talk about him that he talks with media and, um, and he's obviously set up this opposition. Is there any way to draw like a bigger circle around that and be, I, I have some kind of master thesis that, that, um, that keeps you, like gives you a North Star? It's a good question. Um, I think in general that when the media is talking about ourselves, that's not particularly effective. The president's very savvy. He knows that the public hates the media. And so if he can call us fake news or get us to engage in a debate among ourselves, I mean, I know it's very popular to want to stand up in the briefing room and say, we're not fake news. Mm -hmm. um, I think that doesn't help anyone. I mm -hmm. think what we can focus on is sort of our our stories and our writing and our um, reporting. And, you know, the president says something and here's why it's true or here's why it's not true or <clears throat> giving a little bit of the president's thinking into how he makes decisions or the people he surrounds himself with or what his voters are thinking. Mm -hmm. um, the one thing that, that I think is kind of interesting, there's a lot of what I guess is sort of dismissively called palace intrigue around covering this president. And that's because there's all these competing factions um, 
and rivalries and stuff like that. And we cover a lot of that at the Washington Post. Uh, but I can give you, a, you have to bear with me, but I have a, what I think is a pretty good example of why it's all intertwined with actual policy that affects people's lives. So like I could lay out the case right now how a gossip article on two young staffers out on the town um, led to steel and aluminum tariffs, <laughs> which, which very briefly wow. is, you'll recall that Hope Hicks um, was dating Rob Porter. And you first learned about that because a British tabloid literally took a photo of the two of them going to get margaritas at a Mexican restaurant in D.C. And it was maybe nominally scandalous because he was living with another woman, but that was it. It was two young, attractive, consenting adults getting margaritas. But this uh, tabloid photo led to two of his ex-wives coming forward with allegations of domestic abuse. Um, and this then correctly plunged the White House into chaos. And even though no one condones allegations of domestic abuse, there was a sense in the White House that seemed to be borne out in our reporting that Rob Porter was actually highly competent in his job as a White House staff secretary. And one of the things he had been managing was tariffs. And he had actually put in place a process that prevented, there were all these warring factions, and he had put in place a process that prevented the sort of nationalistic faction from coming in and just arguing for tariffs. And he had been holding off tariffs for a really long time. So the White House, in, in sort of like the rational, orderly policy process you would expect from an administration. And so the White House, while they're trying to figure out what to do about Rob Porter and General Kelly's trying to handle it, and he ends up sort of discrediting himself in a way, and it's a whole crisis in the White House. In the meantime, um, you have some of these nationalists who literally sneak into the Oval Office when no one is around and Rob Porter's not there to guard against it and tell the president, like, you want to do tariffs? Like, we'll give you your tariffs. Um, and so when the Washington Post, one of my colleagues, broke the story that these tariffs were coming and other news organizations called to try to match it, the, some of the president's top economic advisors were like, I haven't heard of any tariffs. I don't think that's true. And it's because they literally didn't know. And so that sort of gives you a sense of how policy is intertwined with personality, is intertwined with chaos, is intertwined with the competing factions. And to sort of really understand this White House, you have to know the policy, but you also have to know the people and you have to know the mood and you have to sort of know everything that's happening. Ashley, um, I think it's probably fair to say that that, that most politicians – have told lies from time to time. But I don't think we've ever had a president that only occasionally says something that's verifiably true, right? <laughs> and, you know, the Post has a lie counter, which I think is up over 4,000. Is that... It, 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 yeah, it's, yeah, it's like, it's like you know, about 6.7 per day or something. Right, but it, but it's arguably, and I would argue, that it, it is exceptional when Trump tells the truth and the baseline is to, to, to say things that are either lies or can't are un, unconfirmable. How is a political journalist trained to look for lies and expose them? Do you deal with this fundamental reversal of the, of the <laughs> normal order of politics? And is there some way to kind of, you know, flip the, flip the game where you, you don't no longer have the baseline assumption that what comes out of the, the president's mouth is true unless proven otherwise? So I think one of the jobs of journalists always is sort of a watchdog role and a fact-checking role. And so we have this great fact-checking feature at the Washington Post. And it's not that we didn't have it under President Obama or President Bush. It's just that they're sort of much more active throughout their day under President <laughs> Trump. Um, so they're that's Maytag not... repairmen when uh, when Obama was there. I mean, there yeah, so, that many so lies. Yeah, so there's just more... Um, 
But is that what you think, that there's a continuum? But I don't think it's a continuum. I think there's a difference. Well, I think it's the opposite. I think Bush, you know, I think Bush told lies, but I think he didn't like to tell them. He didn't tell them automatically. He, you know, he told them occasionally, like a lot of politicians. But that wasn't the fundamental, that wasn't the daily business of the presidency. So what's one thing that's sort of more interesting to me that felt like on the campaign trail, especially a kind of existential crisis, um, was that I think we reported fairly consistently and hard-nosed on the president's, you can sort of get into a, a lie is like a, a knowing statement of mistruth of, you know, but you can get into a lie is it a mistruth that is a false statement, but whatever. Like the president is saying things that are not rooted in reality. Um, and you would report on that and nothing would happen. Um, and so it often felt like this sort of just nothing matters. And again, we're not covering politicians. So one person or another person is elected, but I'd covered politics before. I had covered Mitt Romney's campaign in 2012. Um, I had covered sort of poor, sad, sweet Jeb Bush in 2016. Mm -hmm. um, Low energy Jeb Bush? Yes. (laughs) Before I got moved um, to the Trump campaign. And normally if you report on a president's lies, mistruths, whatever, they, they change their behavior and they change what they're saying. And they don't do it because they particularly care that the Washington Post gave them four Pinocchios, but they do it because they believe correctly, that there's a societal penalty to pay with voters. And that Mitt Romney, if he said one thing and then he flipped back, or if he had taken one position on an issue and then he took another position and it was written about that, that he would pay a penalty with voters. Um, And arguably Mitt Romney did. And what Trump sort of intuited was that that it didn't matter, that he could say things that weren't true and we could write that they weren't true, that they were lies or whatever. And, And at least among his base of supporters, no one would care and no one would penalize him um, at the voting box for that. But your, your colleague, David Fahrenthold, had a, had a brilliant insight when he was writing about uh, uh, Trump's supposed philanthropy and everyone was trying to disprove that Trump had given contributions to charity. And he said, wait a minute, let me try to prove <laughs> that Trump gave any contributions to charity. And he couldn't. And he called all these charities and they and they said, we don't have any record of that. And it was kind of a brilliant reversal of how reporting is done. He also, you know, I, th- I thought really brilliantly did it in this transparent way where he asked help on Twitter from his readers and it became yeah. this kind of contrib- participatory journalism exercise. Is there a way, I mean, there is just still this assumption embedded in daily journalism that not just, yes, that the pre- what the president says matters because of course it matters, but that it's that you're innocent until proven guilty, that it's true until shown to be otherwise. And with Trump, that doesn't, doesn't apply. Is there any way to flip the script and say, you know, among the unverifiable things Trump said today, one thing stood out as likely true, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm sure someone could take that approach. I think, you know, I th- look, I think, um, and part of it is that we have a whole fact-checking division. That's not what I devote my day in and day out to. Um, I'm often trying to figure out what's the president thinking, how is he making decisions, what's going on in the White House, stuff like that. Um, but I will say there is maybe, and it's it's not sort of you laid it out as it's sending a message to readers, um, but I do think any reporter who's covered this president, if the president says, you know, the Bureau of Labor and Statistics came out with these employment stats today, I do think probably every single reporter goes to the bureau and checks <laughs> to make sure that, that mm-hmm. those are actually the statistics they put out that day. Mm-hmm. And then you reflect in their story that, 
that they either were or they weren't. Yeah. I mean, I think this goes to the the general question that we've all faced, which is you have a president who conservatively put smashes norms and how do other institutions respond? Do we just steadfastly, as we imagine, I think Robert Mueller doing, say like the procedures are holding, we're going to stick to this, you know, we're going to just go through this methodically and we're not going to play in the press and we're not going to be going to be Trump's mere, you know, absolute opposite. But then, then there have been some media plays or some like Michael Avenatti types who are like, well, now all bets are off. You can run for president, like you said, for, you know, run for president if you're, a, you know, whoever you are. Uh, sorry, Anna said that. Said that, And that, you know, we, our obligation is to, to respond with the same kind of, I don't know, find new ways to cover a president who always lies. Um, and instead of just hoping that this will write itself on its own. I don't know. What, maybe what do you think? Because you've, you've been wrestling with this. I mean, my question, I, I have a question, but it, it sort of, I... I'll just ask it. Uh, <laughs> do you think we even have a president? I mean, and I mean this seriously, right? The, the story you told about the tariffs suggests that the policy happened in part because there was no one in the Oval Office able to really to exercise their will on the bureaucracy and on the staff that they actually are supposed to run. And the, the reporting about sort of aides sort of Taking papers from his desk and and <clears throat> circumventing what he wants what he wants to his impulses seems to suggest that in in a sense there isn't there isn't really a president in the way we traditionally understand it. So I my my question for you is in your reporting and your in, in being so close to the White House, do you get a sense of President President Trump's actual presence as a chief executive, or is his presence sort of in this? rhetorical realm and in this media realm, but in terms of actually making policy and actually running the executive branch of the United States, it's not really there. Well, I think the president was actually sort of surprised to assume the presidency and realize that it wasn't actually like a monarchy um, mm -hmm. or or a family business um, where he was the chief executive. And I think that was a little disappointing to him, <laughs> frankly, <laughs> that you had to go through Congress for certain things. and You can't actually just build a wall. You can talk about it rhetorically, but someone does have to pay for it. Um, and if it's not Mexico, that money needs to be appropriated <laughs> by Congress. Um, so I think that was an adjustment for him. It wasn't what he conceived of the presidency as being. Um, I will say a lot of people uh, inside the White House, frankly, and outside of the White House sort of talk as if the president is like this adolescent, right? Like who needs to be tricked into things or distracted or convinced, you know, it's like, we're going to make cleaning your room a race. Who's faster? <laughs> um, and there is a little bit, <laughs> there is a little yeah. bit of that. Um, and the president, as he sort of said pretty famously, I mean, he said this and I felt like this is the classic evergreen sentence. And this is the reason why every aide wants to be the last person in the room. He said this in his press conference, I believe it was Wednesday. You know, he said, I can be convinced of anything. Yeah, yeah. Um, that being said, I will say the president does have some long-held convictions um, that that he is sort of trying to implement in the direction in which he moves the country. Um, 
One of those is on, and these are things that if you go back uh, to his speeches and his public comments and his tweets and his books for 30 years, he has talked about and holds on a kind of like gut visceral reaction. And it's not like the Federalist Society where he has this set of ideas. It's just something he feels. And so a good example is trade. Um, a good example is immigration. Um, some of that, frankly, is on foreign policy, but he's very mixed. It's like a very hard America first line, but also very anti-interventionalist. So he does, as the executive, um, have certain directions in which he really is trying to move the country with kind of mixed success. He, d- he does have one or two views in the in um, Bob Woodward's book. He, he Trump finally writes his view of, of trade down on a piece of paper, and it's trade is bad. <laughs> Which he reproduces in the book. Is it really? Yeah, I have yeah. it. Um, yeah, but so I, the, I do think that's one thing he actually spoiler. thinks. Trade yeah. is bad. But mm-hmm. um, actually, I wanted to ask you something about that came up with the, uh, Bob Woodward, your, your Washington Post colleague's book. He depicts um, this mentality amongst uh, so many of the president's top advisors and aides, which also, of course, is, is the sort of thesis of that uh, anonymous New York Times op-ed, that what they're doing is justified because they're protecting us from the worst of Donald Trump. That, you know, if, if sane people kind of gave up on him, that he would be just the, you know, just the crazy with none, there'd be no restraint on him at all. Do you, is that the mentality that you've experienced in covering these people? Do you think that's how they justify working for this guy who they don't respect and, you know, um, and are they deluding themselves? I mean, do you think that's, is that a reasonable position? So I, I don't think the people in the White House, um, I don't think it's sort of that homogenous. There's, I think there's a monolithic. I think there's a couple of distinct groups. I mean, I think there actually are the true believers, um, the people who really like him personally and really like on the whole his policies and are there the way staffers in any White House are there, which is to help the president implement his agenda. And that's a group of people. Um, I think there are the people even sort of like a Steve Bannon type who viewed him in the way it seemed like some people viewed President Bush as like an empty vessel and they're there to to weaponize him. Um, you know, you want this populist uprising and, and the president, Donald Trump, is our best shot, right? Um, and they sort of use him where they see fit. And then I think there is this other faction that you saw in the Woodward book, you saw in the anonymous op-ed in the New York Times that do sort of believe that they are there doing God's work, you know, saving the country from the president. Um, and I think, I don't know if they're deluding them their self, themselves or not. You can certainly point to instances or you hear privately, you know, you say, well, well, how did, you're trying to just report something and you say, well, how did this happen? And they're like, oh my God, like we are just so lucky that only that happened, right? Like <laughs> you don't know the 10 ideas we we got him, the things we got him not to tweet or the things we got him not to say about Mika Brzezinski or, you know, the <laughs> whatever it is. Um, and so do I believe that those anecdotes are, are real, that, that there were other things, other treaties, trade packs he was going to withdraw from that he has so far been prevented from doing so or convinced otherwise? Sure. Um, are they deluding themselves? I think that's like a personal choice you have to make. But when we have the, you know, Truth and Reconciliation Commission and these people say, you know, plead not guilty, this was my defense. Mm. Are we going to be sympathetic to that and say, yeah, that is good that you, you were there trying to stop him? Or are we going to say that's bullshit? You just wanted to you just wanted power. I don't know. What, are, what, are, what do you guys I mean, I'm, I've wrestled with this question since the beginning of yeah. the Trump administration. Yeah, I, well, since Fire and Fury. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
I am firmly on the that's bullshit side. Um, mm. In part, I mean, keeping aside whatever personal ideological political objectives those people have, I just think it's a subversion of how this is supposed to work. Like if you think the president is genuinely dangerous, then you resign and you tell the public that you think the president is genuinely dangerous. Mm -hmm. If you... If you believe that it would be better if he wasn't that president, then you make that case to the public. But although every administration has jockeying for power and jockeying for influence, the idea that unelected unelected people within a presidential administration would take it upon themselves to make decisions for the president without his authorization, without his consent, um, on behalf of what's supposed to be best for the rest of us, just strikes me as like a complete subversion of how this is supposed to work, right? Like this is not this is not what anyone elected, right? I like, mean, there is the mechanism that we like got back in our heads after Rosenstein was said to have proposed it, which twenty fifth amendment. I mean, we don't know if these senior administration officials or cabinet members. I don't think anyone quoted in the, uh, I mean, we hear that Mattis is part of the little detente or whatever, but um, I don't know if anyone quoted in the Woodward book as a cabinet person. Well, he doesn't actually quote anybody. That's but right. I think or that his, he seems know, to have sourced Tillerson him. clearly mm. g gave this pitch. Mattis has given this right. pitch. McMaster has given this pitch. I but mean, since, this is what these people think. This is right. what, yeah. I mean, or this is what they say privately. I thought that, that initially I thought there were enough people in Washington that were like his base in suits, norm, looking more normal than his base looks, um, uh, just gunning for, you know, just who loved him, like the people you said. Then I read Fire and Fury, and it's, you know, over and over again, oh, he's insane, he's an idiot, he's a fucking idiot, he's whatever. So many times saying that. I mean, that the only remedy there is a 25th Amendment one. Like, I mean, why aren't they talking about that instead of this soft coup d'etat that is really truly is terrifying. And, you know, it should have been covered as, as like, this is end times. I mean, who's running the country? Well, I mean, I think the answer to you and Jamel is that he was elected. Uh, the, uh, the 25th Amendment was not designed to cover this situation. I mean, unless you think he's, he's, he's really um, irrational or, or, and, you know, I don't know that we have the evidence for that. So I do think, I mean, Jamel, you know, if you, if you think that going public is going to save the country from Donald Trump, you should do that. But if you think it would be ineffectual and the goal is to minimize harm, there is an argument. I guess I don't think it's been ineffectual. I mean, I, I, I'm of the view that the, the idea that Trump is, um, inexplicably popular is not right. I think he's. Inex I, th I think given given the conditions in which he finds himself, like general peace and prosperity, he's probably more inexplicably unpopular. Yeah, and yeah. His unpopularity is precisely a function of the constancy of the crisis, the sense that he is unable to do anything and get anything done. And so, I actually, I actually do think that if McMaster or Mattis or Tillerson, um, you know, had, if Tillerson had resi resigned and said, "I am resigning," not because you know I don't believe in making America great again, but because I think that the president is dangerously incapacitated and cannot do his job. I think that would have, that would have prompted something. I think part of, part of what is Congress is the Republican held Congress is clearly sees itself as sort of politically and ideologically invested in the success of the white house. But part of the dynamic here is that no one is perceiving anyone else as putting up 
sufficient, putting up resistance or opposition from within kind of the firmament. And so no one on Cong no one in Congress sees no one in the administration publicly sending against the administration, so they have no reason themselves to do it. Actual voters see no one on either side sending up to the administration, and I mean Republican voters. So the signal they take is that, well, obviously, Republican elites think this is good, so I think it's good. And so this is, depending on how you look at it, either a mutually reinforcing spiral or death spiral of no one holding anyone accountable, and it kind of creates the situation you find, find ourselves in where nothing moves a needle, when I think actually if, if something in that was broken, the needle would then move. I want to give Ashley the, the last word because yes. we've got to un unfortunately wrap up this seg this segment. But um, so a friend of mine at the New York Times uh, who's a very meticulous reporter admitted, he was on the show, admitted off the mic that he really thinks every headline should still be holy fucking shit, <laughs> you know? And, um, and, uh, and I, I mean... You know, and that's a little bit what we're saying here, that like if, 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 I mean, it's a breakdown of things if we have a coup and the, you know, the deep state or whoever they are, uh, are running the government and keeping him in trade deals or out of trade deals. Um, or what if we're under attack from the Russians all the time and our, and our, you know, what if we're at war? I mean, I don't even know the framework for it and we're all just still doing our good person go to work jobs. I mean, it, does any part of you want to write a holy fucking shit piece just like this is a complete disaster and we need a whole new framework or are you do you think that like <laughs> our old ways and means are going to accomplish the task of I don't know what good good last question the, the listeners can't see Ashley squirming right now <laughs> <laughs> um I think we write a lot of stories. Um, first of all, as I always tell angry readers and angry sources, we don't write our own headlines. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But, <laughs> That's why they would be holy fucking shit if you got that. <laughs> but, but look, I, I think every single day we do our best to write what is actually happening. Mm. Um, and just the way we do, and I should say our executive editor, uh, Marty Barron, says this, but it's actually true. Uh, well, a couple of things. He says, we're not at war, we're at work, but we also don't treat this president or cover him any differently than any other presidents. Um, and so I think we we sort of write what is happening. Mm -hmm. um, and I think sort of readers and viewers may, may say, wow, uh, you just covered that press conference or you just covered that really striking hearing on uh, Dr. Ford and Judge Kavanaugh and and they may sort of put their own holy fucking shit um, yeah, yeah, yeah. schema or framework on it, but it's just our job as reporters to kind of reflect, uh, this is the president, this is what he did, here's why he did it, here's what's true, here's what's not true, here's how decisions are getting made, here's what policy is happening, and then people can kind of bring uh, whatever they want to it. Um, well, I, for one, am very grateful to you for, like, doing what I don't ever want to do, which is get near this White House um, and spending a lot of time there. Thank you, Ashley, very Thanks. much for your work Thank and you for being here. Up. We're going to do one more topic kind of quickly. Jamel's going to take, take the yeah. lead for topic three. Uh, so we're about five or six weeks away from the midterm elections. Uh, there are exciting candidates here in Texas, obviously. Um, yeah. 
exciting candidates all over for all sorts of offices, but the, the, the thing about this election is that it is unusually consequential, right? If Democrats take either the House or the Senate or both, they could conceivably bring the Trump administration to a complete halt. If they take the House, they can engage in all sorts of investigations. If they take the Senate, they can grind the confirmation uh, march to a halt. Now, what's funny about all of this is that Republican lawmakers are also very aware of this fact. And a couple of weeks ago, Axios reported that they were circulating a, a list of scandals that they think Democrats might investigate. And the list is great because these are all legitimate scandals. <laughs> so let me pull it out real quick and read, read them. The list is about 19 items deep. Okay. Let, let's begin. What Republicans are afraid Democrats may investigate should they take the House or Senate or both are President Trump's tax returns, Trump's family family businesses and whether they comply with the emoluments clause, Trump's dealings with Russia, the payment to Stormy Daniels, James Comey's firing, Trump's firing of U.S. attorneys, Trump's proposed transgender ban for the military, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin's business dealings, White House staff's personal email use, cabinet secretary travel, office expenses, and other misused perks, discussion of classified information at Mar-a-Lago, Jared Kushner's ethics law compliance, dismissal of members of the EPA Board of Scientific Counselors. I did not know about that. Mm. The travel ban, the family separation policy, the hurricane response in Puerto Rico, election security and hacking attempts, White House security clearances. That's thorough. Yeah, that, that's, good. that's more. If I'm not mistaken, that's more than there are committees. Right, that's in the more, House. Yeah. more than committees. There are not, not more than there are subcommittees. Right, but, right. Yeah, and and again, this isn't Democrats saying what they want to investigate. Mm. This is Republicans accurately identifying <laughs> what all, the, <laughs> all of the problems. In the administration and saying we and don't want up this some to happen. We didn't even know. I mean, those right. are just reasonable areas of inquiry. Right. Um, so, what I wanted to ask you, Virginia, uh, is looking at uh, this potential. Do you think Donald Trump has any idea of what might happen to him if Democrats take either chamber of Congress? Because Republican lawmakers do, but it's not clear to me that Donald Trump is fully aware of the, uh, the the tsunami of things that may come his way come November 2019 if things go uh, Democrats' way. Well, I'm going to go to the rallies. You know, he's meant to be going to these rallies uh, to stump for a local candidate or, you know, state candidates. And he um, is terrible at that part of things. He almost can never really remember to incorporate that. And I just think that, I really think that he doesn't, perceive objects outside of himself. Like he has some, I don't think his eyes take in other people. Right. You know? um, he lacks and, object permanence. Lacks, like, exactly. I'm, I'm a nine week old at all. And if I leave the room, he's like, where did my bird dad go? Um, and so you're saying Donald Trump is something like that. Has something like that, like yeah. some kind of cognitive failure. I don't think that he's thinking about those elections. I think sometimes he's sort of reminded, like Lindsey Graham sort of tried to remind him in the Kavanaugh hearings that things might really shift and, thing, and that could be bad. Um, but uh, I think he thinks he's got like he's can bluster his way out of even impeachment if it comes to that um as for just the usefulness of this list which is such a great thing to bring to the table i think i've quoted gary kasparov on this on the show before he's been on the show before he says as a chess master as much as a dissident um look to what your opponent not what they're doing not what they're saying but what they're afraid of so I don't play chess, but I assume that some play, you know, you can see that a player is especially connected to his queen and doesn't want to lose it and so forth. And, you know, 
Brett Kavanaugh is afraid of being investigated by the FBI. Like, whatever he says, he just doesn't want that. And, in, you know, in this case, these things that they're afraid of are, thing, are weak flanks, and that's a lot of weak flanks. I mean, even the Republicans at TripVest have been saying, it's hard to imagine that they keep the House, you know? I feel like it's almost foregone. Same question for you, Jacob, and also being that you experience the the Clinton investigations and the Clinton impeachment, does any of this have sort of the the look or the smell of something that might lead up to that? Just like a frenzy of investigation leading up to like an actual effort at trying to impeach Trump? Because looking at this list, I mean, some of these things are if if you if you begin investigations and um, uh, you're turning up evidence of wrongdoing and, and of misdoing coming directly from the office of the president, that's that's what that's what impeachment's for. Yeah. Um, and it would be hard to resist the, the logic of it. Yeah, I mean, I think I don't think Trump has any idea how much this could change. I mean, he's he has been enabled by a Republican Congress that refuses to do its fundamental job of holding him accountable. So on all of these topics, there either is no investigation or there is a sham investigation. And if Democrats take the House. By one vote. I mean, that's why this election is so important. A one vote margin in the House means the, all the committees shift over and they will have real investigations of all of these things. And that means the story every day right. is Trump under investigation, revelations, subpoenas, people being questioned under the hot lights. And even though Trump is in many ways under attack all of the time, it's a fund of the... the the congressional power looking at these issues the way Congress should be looking at these issues fundamentally changes the dynamic. How and whether that leads to impeachment, I think the the basic, Nancy Pelosi's basic strategy is she doesn't want to talk about impeachment. She doesn't think that helps them take the House. But once they take the House, I think there is tremendous pressure from the Democratic base to pursue impeachment. And I happen to think that completely separate from the Russia investigation, Trump has committed what are colorably impeachable offenses. Because impeachment, I think if you look at it in the proper historical context, is about the abuse of, of presidential power. Right. High crimes and misdemeanors to the, to the founders referred to abusing the office of the presidency. And I think that's something Trump does every day in various ways. How that translates into articles in impeachment, when it does, how that plays out politically, I'm not sure. It's quite possible that Democrats would have a strategy that if Trump starts to get in deeper and deeper hot water through a bunch of investigations, they don't, might not want to impeach him. They might think they're better off politically going into 2020 with a highly damaged president than, you know, they, just because they could impeach him in the House and still not... Um, remove him in the Senate, which is obviously much more difficult, even if they take the House. But I think if the Democrats win the House, the political world we're in shifts really fundamentally. I, I, I actually agree with you that I think in terms of the political play, going for impeachment is the bad one. It is to stretch out the investigation as long as possible, right? It is to, I mean, give, given this list, you could conceivably every day have a different headline from a different congressional committee or subcommittee about a different potential offense from January 2019 to November 2020. And that, to me, would seem to be way more politically damaging than putting Trump through an impeachment trial, which would 
could rally Republicans in response, but just a steady drip, drip, drip of, um, of investigations and of credible investigations seems like the better political play, setting aside, you know, the potential damage to the country if Trump is just hanging out there for two more years. We, earlier, we had a, a Congressman Adam Schiff from California and, and Congressman Castro from Texas um, on a panel about Mueller. And they their, you know, House Intelligence Committee investigation into the Russia ties and Russian interference um, has not fully quieted. So like some of these investigations are going to be sort of just add water. I mean, there are people who've had their eye on the on the financial problems, on the uh, the tax returns, um, who, you know, are raring to go. And in some cases, even trading witnesses and evidence with the Mueller investigation. I mean, it's a very activated minority right now. Yeah, will we see the tax returns? I mean, I think, I think a Democratic House could compel the president to release his tax returns. Well, I mean, that's one of many things you could, you could have a showdown about that. But there's also a question about whether 19 investigations would serve the Democrats well, you know, because if they're not, nobody can keep track of 19 investigations, right? And there's a way in which, you know, you, if that happens, you may not be persuading people, you may be creating right. a climate, but you know, that's, I mean, Congress starts to sound like Trump cast, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're, you know, <laughs> we're, we're outraged about something every, every yeah, show, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, but it's, but, but it's hard to keep the focus about, on anything. You always say this about Clinton, the Clinton administration, that everyone had a special prosecutor, like every Snoopy had a little Woodstock. Out right. You were assigned your special prosecutor <laughs> when you were appointed to the, the cabinet. And that was, I think, you know, partly the, the getting rid of the, the, um, the independent prosecutor law was because of the excess and the strange incentives that were created around that, you know, because when you appoint, I mean, forget about Mueller. I think Mueller is, a, you know, is is extremely decent and careful and fair man. But when you're an independent prosecutor, you're like the Canadian Mounties. You want to get your man, right? Mm. You don't you don't win as a special mm-hmm. prosecutor with a career ahead of you by saying, yeah, there's nothing really here. And that's why we had independent prosecutors looking into, you know, Bruce Babbitt, the Secretary of the Interior, and, you know, Henry Cisneros, um, and, you know, people who, well, Bruce Rabbit was pretty close to perfect as politicians go. <laughs> and when there's, a, when there's an independent prosecutor investing Bruce Babbitt, you know something's gone <laughs> wrong with the system. But there were so many of them. Mike Espy, you know, and the Clinton yeah. scandals were, it was not, it did not reflect, the, the amount of investigation and prosecution did not reflect the the level of um, the level of missing integrity in the Clinton administration. Clinton administration wasn't perfect, but it was investigated as as if it were a crime family. We now have an administration that is a crime family, and it's not being investigated at all by Congress. Yep, yep. Um, so setting aside Trump, what do we think happens with Republicans themselves if they end up losing the House or Senate? Because in this world, it will be a lot of Hillary districts that have Republican lawmakers who are out. And so you kind of just have this, like, you, you've shrunk the core of the House Republicans and, and to a lesser extent, the Senate Republicans, sort of the most hardcore members of the party. So I'm not actually sure. Like, I've been thinking a lot about sort of where, how things change for President Trump and the Trump administration, but how how the Republican Party looks when it is Im- embattled within Congress and also has a potentially embattled, embattled uh, president is a question I haven't really been thinking much about. And it kind of has me worried that there'll just be some sort of like crazy acting out um, in, in ways that we can't really anticipate or predict. I mean, one of the really strange factors here that I haven't heard talked about at TripFest is that 
we have now a pretty good report alleging or uh, she comes to probable conclusion that the election was illegitimate, that the Russians did give the presidency to Donald Trump. And it's that thing, that uncanny thing that we've been like trying to metabolize all along, that he's a minority president by a lot and that um, yeah, and that the those who object to him are very public and very activated and 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 sort of to, I don't know, continue to maintain in our in our minds, the idea that like, oh no, forget gerrymandering and forget um, Russian interference, that like, this is the president, we gotta get behind him, like after after Bush versus Gore, like put your all your doubts behind you because we've gotta come around the president and this is all, you know, the normal way of the Republic. But most of us have thought in the squeamish way, this isn't normal. Like you look at the districts, you look at Fox News and the control of the media and it just doesn't look right. And I think if the districts flip, I don't know. I think it'll be like a writing of a certain kind of gaslighting. Like you just, you just want to be reminded that all the women that marched in the, in the women's march, you know, from all in red states are the base, are the voice of the people. Um, and that they look like we thought they looked, they look like Obama voters. Um, I don't know. I look, I just look forward to, I guess I, 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 I don't know. I look forward to the like limbic relief of being like, I knew it. I knew that base was a, you know, was a fiction. Um, and this new book is really, is, is I don't know, uh, Jane Mayer wrote about it and I'm forgetting the name of the author. But Kathleen Hall Jameson. Yes, 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 exactly. Um, and, you know, I don't, I, that didn't, because there was so much other news, land like the bomb, it kind of maybe should have. But I mean, she seems very fair-minded and she says something like to some degree of certainty, we can say that the outcome was changed, which is the thing we haven't been able to say aloud Right, right although I would still say there's there's a very very big difference. Obviously, if that involved the connivance or collusion with Trump, which we don't really right. know, right. and whether it was, if it didn't, whether that was, I think it'd be very different if that were hacking voting machines, yep. which and would be the asterisk versus propaganda, which is as bad as it but is. But the idea that that, that disinformation and targeting and all kinds of other things actually made a measurable difference in the vote in a kind of one-to-one way is something we thought we couldn't show. And she, or a lot of people have been determined to say is, in, is can't be determined. She says it can be. If you've been listening to Trumpcast, this, this article may not come as, as much of a surprise. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I think, Jamel, we should take a few questions. Right, We're running, running say, out yeah. a little time. Yeah. But do, you, do you have a last, last word here? I don't. Let's go to the questions. All right. Um, we're going to take a few quick questions um, before we wrap up. Snowflake Rosen yes, at the microphone. thank you. Thank awesome. you. So we've seen Trump kind of start to hedge publicly. I'm going all the way back to the first point you made. When people, when favor turns against people that he has previously supported. Mm. So do you think that his saying that... Dr. Ford's testimony was compelling. Is him starting to do that public hedging? Or is he all, still all in on Kavanaugh? Is that when he cuts him off like a starfish arm thing? Right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I thought, I, I thought that was, I thought you can explain at least part of Kavanaugh's testimony as a reaction to that, right? That like a fear that, uh, that President Trump is getting ready to, to cut him loose. And there had been reporting earlier in the week that after that Fox News interview, Trump was like, this guy is a loser. He is, you know, he's he's not um, he's not fighting for himself. He's weak. And there were there's kind of indications that he might be, Trump was preparing to kind of 
call it a wash. And I think, I mean, my read of how Republican lawmakers responded was they recognize that if Kavanaugh does not get through, that Trump is not going to nominate someone from whatever list they have, that Trump will read this as being a complete disaster for him. And he might, I don't know, like nominate his sister or whatever. Um, So for them, this is like the last go of it. Like they don't get a second chance, which I think maybe explains their, some of their behavior as well. Yeah. I mean, their strategy was, I think he kind of read his cue card a little bit. The strategy was don't attack her, don't attack her. And I think he actually assimilated that. And he was like, all right, I'm not attacking her. She's great. You know, yeah. and he, and then he was, <laughs> it wasn't his accidental commission of truth. Right. Mm. But it didn't, that wasn't his point. He just wanted, he thought he had to get that out of the way so he could go ahead and defend Kavanaugh. But of course they're totally incompatible. Mm-hmm. Do you want to add anything on this? No, okay. no, no, no. Yes, sir. Hi, my name is Corey. I live here in Austin, and I'm a composer. And I wanted to know if you think that there's any reason to re-examine our, uh, your journalistic policies about being on the record and off the record, if people should speak more on the record or if we could continue to let people speak off the record. I know it's a potentially chilling thing, but what do you think? Well, fortunately... Um, as a commenter and an editorial writer, I don't have to talk to anyone. I can just sit in a chair and think thoughts. Um, and, um, and then, or at Trumpcast, talk to other people who, like Ashley, who have that much trickier job of figuring out how to handle sources. Um, yeah, I mean, I, think, I do think this presidency has had us um, look deeply at what are journalistic conventions, because once you pull the pins out of conventions in the White House, we sometimes need to respond in kind. Um, you know, the podcast is, it's Trumpcast has been a really, and, and you know, now I'm going to move into the like sad valedictory part for Jacob, but Jacob set up this show that is like part comedy and part, you know, we start with like, can't stop the Trump, the Trump, can't stop the Trump, (laughs) the goose stepping thing. I mean, we're like wearing our biases like a Celtic tattoo, right? (laughs) (laughs) And, um, and, uh, and, you know, and that allows, I think, to us to do, um, you know, a lot of really good reporting or at least talk to, uh, talk to other reporters, but in a context of the holy fucking shit thing, which I think I, I, you know, I, I, well, just to give a lot more credit to Jacob has been the reason that the tone of the show works because we're always on the side of this is really, really wrong and disastrous and we are in a catastrophe. I mean, we never, you know, Jamel will just be like, we don't in any real sense have a president. Just to come, like, that's something I've heard you say many times. And I just agree. And that's just where we are and we don't have a president and we just have to soldier on with that. But anyway, this question for newspaper journalists, for beat journalists, for investigative journalists about sources um, is, is, is incredibly challenging. And it's actually something that I think Michael Kinsley, when he started Slate, um, he had, a, there was a certain anguish around the conventions of reporting that he wanted Slate to answer, right? I mean, that Slate would be, 
I remember one time he just said, I hate reporting. Right. Um, but um, his answer to, to do, don't, word. whether you should quote people anonymously was you shouldn't quote people at all. Yes, that's right. right. Exactly. <laughs> because you can, surely you can say it more efficiently yourself. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, maybe say something about sourcing because, yeah, yeah, you've thought these things through somewhat. Well, I mean, I think if you're, if you're a journalist in America right now, you have to recognize that, that we have a credibility problem with a lot of people and a, and a trust problem. And I don't think it's highly justified i as a as a journalist i think journalists journal journalism is in a, a, an excellent state right now and i'm very proud of the mm -hmm. work that the best journalists in the country who've been reporting on trump have been doing however it's very clear that anonymous sources are one of the triggers for mistrust people who in some cases may not understand what that means or how it's used um, but i do think that figuring out how to how to regain trust from readers and viewers and listeners is an imperative. And if trying even harder than journalists already do try, and they generally try very hard to avoid the use of anonymous sources, is points in that direction, I'd say let's try harder. But when it comes to, it always comes down to, is this the only way you can get the information? And when it is, you don't want to tie a hand behind your back because our job, the job of, of journalists who do reporting is to, is to inform the public. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, all right, well, Virginia, thank you for those kind words. This is a little bit valedictory. Um, I started Trumpcast in, I believe it was March 2016, um, when I said to Jason and another producer who was working with us, this guy could really get the nomination. We got to start. The nomination. <laughs> I mean, he won't get we all the We got to start but. doing this. And, um, you know, it was a bit of a joke on the show that we were going to stick around until he was gone. And when we started the show, I really thought that was going to be the Republican convention. But I wasn't sure, which is why we started the show. And then I had, um, with, you know, totally false, uh, unjustified confidence, thought it was going to be November uh, November 2016. And there we were still doing the show. Um, and uh, many people have pointed out to me that I made this commitment. We were going to stick around. I just want to say, read the fine print. I said, we, not <laughs> me. Uh, uh, but after, after Trump was elected, I said, I really need help. I can't do this. The show needs to be done, but, it, but I can't do it as much as it needs to be done. And I think I made two calls. I called Virginia and I called, I called Jamel. Um, and, um, you know, Vir Vir Virginia, who was, who's been doing the show with me, um, has really, you know, my handpicked successor. And um, I'm really pleased and proud to be handing the show to her. I know Jamel's still going to be a part of it. I hope to still be a part of it. Um, but Virginia will be the host from now on. Um, I said tonight, you know, to Jason, we should have some sort of symbolic uh, passing of the baton. Can you get me a baton to give her? <laughs> and um, he couldn't find a baton in Austin today. He found a bolo. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, this is, um, you, uh, list, listeners can't see that I'm actually wearing a bolo, which is not what I usually wear. Um, <laughs> but uh, I've been wearing it for the show and uh, I'm going to pass it on to Virginia. So this is now the Trumpcast host Bolo. <laughs> Thank you. I just, 
Wow, thank you. Take care of it. You don't have to wear it back in New York, but, you know, um, <laughs> we, we love it. I think speaking for all of us, um, I think the Texas Tribune is one of the most successful experiments in a, in a new model for journalism in this country. And we came here last year and we had a fantastic time, both because this audience is so fantastic, but also to be part of this larger thing going, around, going on around support for the Texas Tribune and its commitment to journalism in this state and in, in this city. Um, so it's, it's great that this is, I think, you know, the last moment, the bolo. I think you should wear the bolo if we're invited back next year. Oh, yes. And I hope we will I, I be. I think I'm going to wear it all year. But you don't have to wear the bolo in New York. <laughs> um, I want to I say one thing about um, essentially what gave Jacob his continuing job on Trumpcast and what gave me and Jamel our jobs on Trumpcast, which is election night. 2016, you guys probably don't remember it. Nothing really happened, but for us, um, we were we had um, we were having there was a party, sort of a party, to celebrate the victory, inevitable victory of Hillary Clinton. The end Clinton. of Trumpcast. The end of Trumpcast, right? And um, it was uh, it was literally in New York, like a kind of a song and dance show. I mean, we were that happy, and uh, and there were comedians, and it, you know it was a lot of fun. But and we didn't even we weren't even watching the returns. That's the other thing. I mean, just the hubris. But anyway, <laughs> backstage, some of us had it on our phones, and we're starting to get sinking feelings. And um, yeah, I've known Jacob for a long time, and he's like he's like a, a pole star for me because. <laughs> Do you know what I'm going to say? No. Because every time like something happens in politics, he's like can think through the whole 20th century and it's just like, well, this is kind of exactly what happened with McGeorge Bundy and something, <laughs> something. And, um, and so I was just like, everyone's face was falling. Some people were actually in tears. Michelle Goldberg was there and just this crazy panic. And I was like, I'm going to look at Jacob and he's going to say, well, there's a clause in the Electoral College. <laughs> like, this isn't going to happen. Jacob was white. I mean, I've <laughs> never seen you like at a loss like that. Like just, I feel like you were going through in your like insane brain, every past president, you know, are, like things you've learned, things you've thought, things you've written, what impeachment looks like. And you were just coming up like, I don't know what we're going to do. And I'm so glad that he, the thing that he decided to do was continue to do journalism, continue to, to use this new form, podcasting, which is a way to address this not normal president. The president, by the way, doesn't listen to podcasts, so he never calls us. He doesn't say <laughs> podcasters are the enemy of the people. We are like Sami's dot. We're, you know, we can continue to tell the story, and I'm so glad you did that for us because it's been such a sanity-preserving um, measure, Trumpcast. Thank you, Virginia. I want to end with a few credits. We want to thank Evan Smith and the Texas Tribune Festival. We want to thank, we want to thank the Capital Factory where we've been all day. This has been a great, they've been a great host here. Uh, the person who conceived and put this together, Faith Smith, with help from Kristen Holtz, who led the effort on this event. Our producer, Jason DeLeon. For Virginia Heffernan and Jamel Bowie, thanks for coming to Trumpcast Live in Austin. Thank you.